Well, as we come to the proclamation of God's word, I would invite you wherever you are in your home uh, to stand uh, as we read God's word. We're going to be in Ephesians 5. We're going to be starting in verse 21, and we're going to be going all the way to verse 33. So hear the word of the Lord. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. Just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, your word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So would you plant this deep in our hearts today that we might not sin against you? Lord, would you bring it out in us, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our vocations for the sake of your world, O God? Christ, would you come and be our teacher today, we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's always something about a wedding that leaves us wanting to tell stories. I was recently in a wedding for a friend of mine, and on the night of his bachelor party, we had basically an hour where we just told stories. We told stories about how each of us had met the groom. We told stories about how the groom had met his wife. And then afterwards, we actually had the time where he gave us all groomsmen gifts, but they were all different gifts because they all had a unique story attached to them. Fast forward to my own wedding, which happened this past March, and the same thing actually seemed to occur. And that in the months and days leading up to the ceremony, what people wanted to do was tell stories. There were stories about how Allison, my wife, and I had dated for five years before we got married, from freshman year of college all the way through uh, to the end of Allison's grad school, and all the funny moments along the way. There were stories about our friends and how they stood loyally beside us and oftentimes told us that we just needed to get married already. There were stories about family, about marriages that had gone before us that had laid an awesome foundation for us to look to. There were also sad stories as well, stories about marriages that hadn't worked out, that provided a warning for us. There were stories about loved ones who weren't gonna be at our ceremony because they had already passed into glory. You see, it seemed as if though marriage provided people the opportunity to tell the stories of their lives. And if we think about it, all of life's big moments do this, whether it's a birthday or a promotion or moving to a new place or even a funeral, they all provide us the opportunities to tell stories. And this isn't a reality lost on God either because he loves to use these moments as well to tell a story. In fact, what we're going to talk about this morning is how God uses marriage 
to tell his grand story of redemption. And so if you've been with us for this past summer, you know that we've been studying the book of Ephesians. And if you go through the book of Ephesians, what you realize is the first three chapters, Paul is basically telling the grand story of the gospel from promises made in eternity to the redemption of God's people who were deemed children of wrath to this binding of us together as the body of Christ. See, this is the narrative of scripture, the story that God has been writing throughout all time. However, the second half of the book shifts. And in Ephesians four through six, it goes from story to almost a list of moral commands, moral standards that we should follow. So what's the reasoning for Paul to move from telling a story in chapters one through three to almost this list of do this and don't do that, this in the second half of the book? And it's actually more connected than you might think. Because you see, Paul uses these moral commands in the second half of the book as a way to teach the body how to live out the gospel. Because when the body of Christ lives this way, we embody the gospel message for each other to see, but also for the world to see. And marriage is simply one of these places. And Paul wants marriages to be ordered a certain way so that they tell of the grand story of the gospel. And the good news is that it serves more than just married people when this happens, because all people in the body need to see and also be around healthy marriages because God uses them as a way to communicate his truth. And so if we're serious about living on mission in our families, our neighborhoods, and our vocations, then we should desire that our body has healthy marriages because marriage is actually one of the most powerful pictures of the way that Christ loves the church. And it's in this way, when we live according to these commands, that the truths of Ephesians one through three actually begin to hit home for us. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to walk through this passage almost like it's a chapter book. I want us to walk through the gospel in the context of marriage. So where we're gonna start this morning is we're gonna start with sin. Then we're gonna move to justification and we're gonna close with sanctification. And what I want us to see is how the gospel is told in the context of a marriage. And hopefully what that's gonna do is that's gonna lead us to some inroads, some applications that we can take away for how our marriages could better reflect God's story. So hopefully you have your Bibles with you and they're still open. And we're gonna start this morning the same place that Paul starts. We're gonna start in verse 21. So the first command of this passage Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the first command of this passage is for us to submit to one another. And oftentimes people on the outside who are critical of scripture, they love to point to this passage in particular as a reason for why they believe scripture is outdated. Because who should be submitting to anybody anymore? And if we're honest, using the word submission can make us all a little uncomfortable. And why shouldn't it? It has bad historical ramifications where lesser powers who were forced to submit to greater powers found themselves with a loss of freedom. And in our modern day, people who were forced to submit, we've seen them experience abuse and they've lost their voice. See, we even have authorities who we might disagree with fervently. And when we feel like we're supposed to submit to them, we feel like we can lose our autonomy and our individual expression. So submission doesn't have a great connotation in our culture. However, 
If you scan the English translations of scripture, you'll be hard pressed to find one that doesn't render this word either submit or subject. So if we believe that this is God's holy and inerrant word, then we shouldn't be trying to get around this word submit, but we should be asking the question, why does Paul have it here? And to start with that answer, this moral command is there because it reminds us of the first big chapter of God's story of redemption, and that's our sin. See, if you look at verse 21, you'll note that submission is not simply a command to just wives, as is often asserted when you start talking about this passage, but it's actually a command to all of us. We submit to each other. And think about it. When we submit to something, it leads us to self-denial. Because when we submit, we have to lay our ideas, our desires, our perspectives down. We have to follow the desires and the perspectives of another. We have to die to ourselves. And if you've read scripture, you realize that this is the calling of God throughout all of scripture, that we should die to ourselves because we're sinful. One of the most profound truths in all of scripture is that what we inherently desire and what we inherently perceive about the world is marked by sin. It's sinfully broken. And we oftentimes walk around thinking that we hold the objectively correct truth about everything. It could be something about politics or COVID-19 and how to deal with it, all the way down to the small things, like where's the best place in Orlando to eat for dinner? We don't often stop to reflect on how our own viewpoints and perspectives can be marked by sin. And that's what Jack talked about last week. And ever since the garden, when Eve took the apple against the command of God, we've been caught in this story where we believe that our desires and our intentions will always lead us to a better place than if we were to submit to another, especially if that other is God himself. We believe that our desires and our intentions will always get us to a better place than if we were to submit to the will of God. Yet the truth of scripture reminds us that when we follow these inherent desires in our hearts, usually that leads forth to sin. And sin can only lead to one place and that's death. So rather the heart of a Christian redeemed by grace is not one to follow our own desires, but to actually submit them to Christ. And so as Paul references marriage here, he begins with submission because he knows that the struggle of the human heart is to struggle for control. Because when you put two sinful, broken creatures together, their desires in the flesh will wage war against one another. And when you are married, we've realized that sin doesn't actually go away and it actually can still fester. And so rather than allowing sin to fester, we're called to submit ourselves. And before we get too far, it's really important to clarify here that the Bible does set up a dynamic where the husband is the head of the wife. And if we're reading quickly, it can seem as though the wife has a lot more submitting to do, but that is not the case. Because if you see, while the husbands are the head of the marriage, they are called to a submission that is patterned by Christ himself. You see, they're given power, they're given authority, but not so that they can wield it, but so that they can lay it down for the sake of their bride. Just as Christ, who was God incarnate, had all authority in heaven and on earth, he submitted it all, submitted his life for the sake of us, his bride. 
So wives, yes, you are called to lay your desires at the feet of your husband, but husbands, you are called to lay your life at the feet of your wife. Wives, you're called to submit, but husbands, you're called to be worth submitting to. And the only way that happens is if you are willing to fully submit for the sake of your wife. And this is a liturgy that strikes the very balance in the problem of what sin does in our lives. Because rather than being about myself, the biblical picture of marriage forces me to be about my spouse first. See, we need to submit because we know that sin can distort our desires and our intentions. And that's where sin can begin to fester. And so submission actually provides us a helpful medicine to fight it. And so in a practical sense, this leads us to ask the question, how can we serve one another in marriage? In what ways do we submit to our spouse? Or do we hang on thinking that our desires and intentions are objectively correct? Husbands, are you worth submitting to? And to be clear, the qualifications for being worth submitting to are not the same as running a company or being the boss of a business, but rather the biblical qualifications for being worth submitting to is that your life is fully submitted to the reign of Christ. And when a husband is fully submitted to the reign of Christ for the sake of his bride, then a wife's submission isn't difficult because when she lays her desires down, what she'll find is freedom in life. Because that's what the church finds when we lay our desires before Christ. We find freedom in life and who we were created to be. So a marriage that is marked by mutual submission, it actually points us all to this reality that we are sinners in need of grace and that we need to submit ourselves to the reign of Christ. Moving on then, Paul then shifts after talking about the husbands to painting the picture of Christ. And throughout the passage, Paul is really keen on connecting the marriage between a husband and a wife with the ultimate marriage of Christ in the church. And so remember, our marriages tell God's story, literally, And so Paul recounts in verse 25 that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. And this moves us into the second chapter of God's story, which is our justification. And remember, we've already discussed that we're sinful and that our thoughts and our actions inherently run away towards Christ. And in scripture, sin leads us to death because we are lawbreakers. We have broken God's good design for this world. And yes, God still loves us, but we are criminals in our sin. And unless something is done, we cannot save ourselves. And in order for God to stay just, to stay holy, to stay perfect as he is, he must punish us for our sin. And this is where Christ makes the first move. Verse 25 says, he loved the church. He gave himself up for it. That term, gave himself as a past tense, completed action. He gave himself once and for all. And as Paul has articulated in other letters and even in Ephesians, that death on the cross wins us back to God. It justifies us before God. It declares us innocent before God. And it makes way for the rest of our story to come. 
See, Christ's life pays for ours. And that is the beauty and the hope of the gospel that we celebrate this morning. That while we were still in our sin, that while we were still in our hopelessness, while we didn't necessarily have it all together, Christ came and died for us. He won us back from the clutches of evil and he made us alive with him forever. And so what does this have to do with marriage? See that Paul wants us to recognize that when we put our faith in Christ, our status before God was eternally changed. And it wasn't contingent on anything we did. See, God didn't need us to sign a contract saying what we would do with a new lease on life if he decided to justify us. God didn't set a standard and say, hey, if you meet this standard, then I'll keep your justification. And if you miss the standard, well, you're kind of out of luck. But the truth of the gospel is because of what Christ did and Christ alone, your status is changed from a child of wrath to a child of God when you put your faith in him. In an instance, your status is changed and nothing that comes after will be able to change that. If you think about it, it sounds a lot like a wedding vow. If you're married, my guess is that your vows that you made to your spouse didn't have a lot of asterisks to them probably didn't have a lot of preconditions or requirements. In fact, I probably would bet it was the opposite. Probably made a lot of one-sided promises. You might've said something like this, take you to be my husband or my wife for better or worse, in sickness or in health, for richer or poorer, to have and to hold until death do us part. And what you usually don't add to that is, I'll only do this, if you keep up your end of the bargain too. See, when Allison and I got married this past March, I said those same vows. And all Allison had to do while I made my vows was hold my hands and smile back at me. And I was, I am, and I always will be fully responsible for what I vowed, even though Allison hadn't said anything yet. And that is a picture of justification. See, Christ has said, I love you and I will give myself for you. I will bring you into my household and I will set every spiritual blessing upon you and you need to only be still and put your faith in me. And the joy of the Christians this morning is that Christ is never breaking his promise to us. And when we stray, even when we fall into temptations from the allures of the world, Christ is still faithful to us. He is the husband who once he has declared us his own will never leave us. So turn to marriage for a second. Faithfulness is the key way that we communicate this glorious truth of justification. However, some of us may think that faithfulness only applies to the, the big issue of marital infidelity in that if we stay married, then we're considered faithful. And that is totally true. But our calling to faithfulness runs so much deeper than simply keeping the big promise. Because as Paul details in Ephesians, the way that husbands should love their wives is as they love themselves. And that's simply kind of repeating the second great commandment that Jesus gives, that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It's a much more intimate application so that means in every small detail, we show our commitment and our faithfulness to one another. In our parenting duties, we remain faithful. In our finances, we remain faithful. In our quality time as husband and wife, 
we remain faithful. In our hopes, in our dreams, in our plans about the future, we remain faithful. Because the temptation is to always take care and seek what we want, even in marriage, rather to, to be sacrificial and honor the commitments that we've made. Because in our culture, if someone lets you down, then you're free. You don't have to keep up your end of the bargain. But marriage is full of unfaithful moments, isn't it? We fail our responsibilities all the time. I've been married for just a few months and I've already failed my responsibilities. But God's design of marriage should show that our performance as a husband or a wife does not legitimize the promises that we made, but rather the promises made provide safety and comfort even when we fall. Even when we fail, it shouldn't change the constant love of another just as it doesn't change Christ's love for us. And so marriages that emphasize the permanence of it all communicate something to the world about faithfulness, communicate something to the world about the relentless pursuit of God for his people. Because over and over again, the bride of Christ has fallen short. We've failed our responsibilities, yet Christ hasn't left us behind. Instead, he leans in and he reaffirms his steadfast love for us again and again. And so when we in our marriages have this steadfast love of God in view, we are compelled to live lives of faithfulness, but we have the peace and security to know that even when we fail, and we will, that we are safe and secure in the arms of another, just as we are in the arms of our husband, Jesus. See, marriages can show the good news of justification, And so we reach the final chapter. And as Paul continues through this section on marriage, he writes that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. And then he begins to explain the reason why. So that he might sanctify her, present her without any spot or blemish. In other words, Christ's purpose for giving himself was to make the church holy and righteous. And there's this tension that we have in scripture, isn't there? See, we were created good, but we fell into sin and Christ came and he redeemed us from our sin. He gave us the promised Holy Spirit and now we will live eternally with him and we're on a path towards eternity. But there's this nagging issue and that sin still is around. We still struggle with it. And so the last great chapter of God's story of redemption is this ridding of sin in our lives. It's our sanctification or our being made holy. And the reality is, is that the place where Christ was willing to give himself for us and the place where Christ wants us to end up, this place of holiness and blamelessness as a radiant church, they're actually not the same place. See, Christ gave himself for us while we were in our sin, but not so that we would remain there, but that we would grow into the image of him. And Christ actually draws into union with us so that he might sanctify us. He might cleanse us and make us holy and blameless for the final day of his return. And that actually gives us a helpful guide as we navigate marriage. Because we are sinners who have made absolute promises to one another. So how do we live in the face of that? Well, some of us have this sinful tendency where we believe that our promises that we've made almost sets the standard that our spouse should always meet. And when they don't meet our standards, however big or small, we can become frustrated, angry, disgruntled, upset. And if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes we can expect perfection from wives and husbands who are imperfect people. 
And it's here where Christ points us to his desire for marriage in the body. And that marriage is actually a sanctification factory. Because the process of making two into one is hard. It isn't actually easy. And so we're called as a church not to be harsh in our dealings with one another, but we're called to be graceful with one another. See, there will be problems and issues within all marriages. I guarantee that. But when those moments come up, are we going to deal with them in anger or frustration, or are we going to create opportunities for growth, grace, and forgiveness? See, marriage in a Genesis 3 3 world is actually not absent of conflict, but rather the marriage that Christ has set out for us in this sinful, fallen, broken world is one that uses moments of conflict, uses moments of weakness as opportunities to sanctify one another. And it isn't always easy. Remember, Ephesians 5 talks about that we are washed with water through the word. And if you've ever come into contact with the word of God, you know that sometimes it's not a very comfortable thing, but it always will push us closer to Christ. So this leaves us with a very hard question. And I ask it to myself daily. Do we keep our spouse's sanctification in mind daily? Do we desire for them to be as they one day will be in glory in all moments of our life and day. Because marriage is a union that uses these moments of weakness as times to grow and sanctify one another. And so on a practical sense, this also means that our marriages shouldn't be putting on false fronts. Because if marriages are constantly sanctifying us, and that means in the context of marriage that there will be shame and guilt that's starting to come to the forefront because we are sinful people. And the temptation is that we always want to put on the best version of ourselves to be the perfect marriage and the perfect family and to come to church and have it all together to be buttoned up, looking good. When in reality, there's sin that's festering underneath the surface, slowly destroying us from the inside. See, a lack of vulnerability keeps this reality alive that we somehow need to have it all together. And that's just not true. And so what we want to be is marriages that are willing to admit that we are sinful that we have fallen short and move in the context of the body towards holiness and blamelessness, using each and every moment as a step along the way to glory, just as Christ is doing in us. Marriages can tell the good news of our sanctification. I'll close with this story. Uh, One of my best friends got married about two years ago and I was blessed to be in his wedding. And about two hours before the ceremony was to happen, we're all sitting in the groom's room kind of celebrating and uh, a family member comes into the room and basically tells the groom that there was family drama outside and it basically culminated with the bride being yelled at about two hours before her ceremony and she was out there crying. So you can imagine the groom immediately takes off Uh, And we as the curious groomsmen kind of get by the door so we can look out and see what's going on. I don't remember much about that day, but I do remember that image and it is burned in my memory. And what I saw was a groom fiercely loyal to his bride. And he was sitting at a table holding her and comforting her. And he was almost like shielding away the drama and the sin that had plagued that family that day. And in a few short hours, what he was about to do was lay down his life for her when he said his vows. I remember leaving that wedding going, wow, what a picture of the gospel. And it was told to me in the context of a marriage. So my prayer for us today 
This isn't an easy word. This isn't one that is easy to teach, but it's a good word. And my prayer would be that our marriages day in and day out, they would always reflect the glory of the gospel. Would they be submissive marriages pointing to our need for a savior and that we're all sinful? Would they be faithful pointing to the justification of a God who calls us his own? Would they be a place of growth pushing us to the reality of holiness and blamelessness when we are a radiant church before God, our savior? Our marriages tell God's story. They have the privilege of telling God's story. I pray that they would tell them well or tell it well. Let's pray together. Lord, this is sometimes a hard word to hear. Lord, sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. But then again, when we come into contact with your word, it doesn't always mean it's gonna be comfortable. So Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts. Would you examine us? Would you teach us your ways, oh God? Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation, the gospel story that is told throughout all of life, but even in our marriages? Would you point us to you, our perfect and faithful husband, who once you have declared us your own and you will never break your promise to us. So Lord, I pray you would find us faithful as we seek to carry your words, seek to carry your gospel in all areas of our lives. We ask for your blessing this day in Jesus' name. Amen.